HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Restaurants employ over 15 million people nationwide, and two-thirds of all restaurants are independently owned and not part of big chains. Yet currently, these small businesses are not represented in government relief negotiations. Roar is working to change that by fighting for relief opportunities for all restaurants. Roar is advocating for an eight-point plan in New York State that will allow restaurants to reopen and rehire when the time comes. Dozens of industry leaders have signed on to the plan, like Nam Wa Tea Parlor, Field Trip, Momofuku, and many more of your favorites. You can join them at change.org by searching for Roar, relief opportunities for all restaurants. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. For those of you with kids at home, I've been working on a new podcast here at Heritage Radio Network. Along with my co-host, Hannah Forden, the program manager at HRN, we've created Time for Lunch, a fun, food-focused show for kids. We're aiming to release a new episode every week, and we'd love it if you'd check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Today's theme, Feed the People. Today is April 20th, 2020. I've been at home with my family for 42 days. While many of us are at home with family or alone, with our children or our grandparents, food is still a commonality for all of us. We all need to eat, and so many of us have our social media feeds filled up with photos of sourdough bread, paella, pantry dump meals, and more. People are hoarding food and paper goods, and it certainly seems to me that while we may end up with some foodstuffs becoming hard to get, I don't see us running out of food here in the U.S. It is important to remember that there are still many people all over the world who are living without the knowledge of where exactly their next meal will come from. Now more than ever, people are in need of food security and are turning to soup kitchens and food pantries to feed themselves and their families. I spoke last week with Stephen Henderson, whose new book, The 24-Hour Soup Kitchen, Soul-Stirring Lessons in Gastrophilanthropy, while unfortunately timely, is a great read and puts feeding the hungry into an international perspective. If you have the means to support your local soup kitchen or food pantry, please consider donating your time, funds, or any skills you might have to help them. Hey, uh, my name is Stephen Henderson. I'm a, I'm a New Yorker. I'm a writer. And um, I, I had a long career in public relations, and then I turned myself into a journalist. Uh, usually people go the other way because there's, there's more money in public relations, but sure. I, I jumped the ship the other way. 
And I had, a, I had a great run for about 10 years writing about food and travel and design and sometimes science, sometimes religion for all sorts of places like the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times and Town and & Country and Food and & Wine, Gourmet, El Decor. Um, because I'd worked in public relations, I kind of knew how, how to rustle stories together. And so that was great. And then um, I blundered upon an idea for a book, which is, I guess, why we're talking today. Yeah, indeed. So, I mean, the book is called The 24-Hour Soup Kitchen, uh, subtitled Soul Stirring Lessons in Gastrophilanthropy. Um, and it's, you know, if I do say so myself, it's a really interesting, fascinating, well-written book. Oh, thank you. Um, so, so, you know, I mean, I, and I think that it is a topic that, I mean, you started writing this before the world's soup kitchens were overrun because of the economic destruction that COVID-19 is currently wreaking. Um, right. But, uh, you know, but it, it is it is something that is prevalent all over the world uh, and, you know, now more than ever. So I think it's a good time to kind of talk about this and bring this up into people's, you know, lives and minds. Well, yeah, friends have said to me, oh, Stephen, your timing is so perfect. You were so smart to have this news hook. And it's like, oh, well, I could have done without this news hook. I, right. you know, I'm, I, I feel a little bit anyway. So, yes, it, it is very timely. I'm 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 not particularly happy. About, obviously, I'm not happy that it's timely, but the, the poor are with us and there's always hungry people. It's just there's a there's so many more now. Yeah. Absolutely. That, and, yes. and and there's a lot happening, I think, in the in the systems that have developed, at least in this country. I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd be interested to hear from you about how it works in other parts of the world, if you have insight into that. But I know that in this country, you know, a lot of the food systems are being upended as well, because, yes. you know, a lot of the ways that food gets into food pantries and soup kitchens, uh, you know, those systems are being turned upside down because farmers are plowing under fields because they're not going to be able to sell them. And it was the kind of the the, you know, let's say onions, for example, it was the 20% of onions that didn't end up selling that got shifted to a, to a soup kitchen. Those aren't right. even exist now. No, exactly right. And well, and as, as you well know, there are so many more people then coming to the food pantries and the soup kitchens. So it's a double whammy. There's less food and more clients. So it's not great. So, so let's talk about, you know, let's talk about the book, um, okay, because please. there are, you know, there's some light, there's some light things in the book and some things that are, you know, I think good to think about. And, and, you know, certainly there's some feel good stories in there. And obviously, you know, a lot of it revolves around people who are at the bottom edges of society. But I, you know, I want to talk about sort of, you know, you grew up the son of a Baptist preacher and you mentioned in the book that, you know, food was not you know, was not always like the central commodity at home because your mother was helping your father in the church. And, you know, it was more than a full-time job for both of them. Well, that's exactly right. I think, um, yes, my, my dad had a series of, of Baptist churches around, mostly around New York City. And this is in the, I was born in 58. So this is the 60s, early 70s, where, you know, it was just, it went without saying that my mother was my father's unpaid assistant. Mm -hmm. And she would have to help him. You know, she edited his sermons. She would type the church bulletin. She led the Women's Missionary Fellowship. There was a kind of Christian version of the Girl Scouts called Pioneer Girls that she was the leader of. And so, you know, she was very, very busy. And, you know, like a, like a lot of dual income households, it's sort of like mommy and daddy are rushing home right before dinner and 
what's going to be served? And this is also pre-microwave. And we were too poor to go out to eat or, you know, order in. Nobody knew from ordering in in the 60s. So I'm not exactly sure why, because I had three older sisters and an older brother, but my mom kind of made me her sous chef. And that was something you took to from a young age? Well, I really did. I, I... I I liked everything about it. I liked going to the grocery store. I liked, you know, we weren't poor, but there wasn't a lot of money and there wasn't a lot of, you know, there there wasn't a lot of stuff being bought at our house and going to the grocery store was kind of a big event. And so, you know, to load up the bags and bring them home and put all the food in the cupboards and then to actually learn basic cookery uh, and you know i loved my mother and to be with my mother in the kitchen it was it was kind of exciting for me and so i think she knew well i got a slave here i'm gonna take advantage of it <laughs> right right and you mentioned in the book i mean obviously you know i it seems like this is something you realized much later but you recount a story about coming to a new church uh that your father was leading and there being all of these bags of food for your family Right. There's, there was this tradition that I, I'm pretty sure it still goes on in some Baptist churches. It was called pounding the preacher, where the you know we showed up for our first Sunday at Levittown Baptist Church on Long Island, and all the church people had gotten together and amassed this really astonishing amount of food, you know, non-perishable stuff that was given to us, and it was kind of like Christmas on speed, you know, like all of this. You know, so much. And it, it blew my mind as a five-year-old. And so, you know, so that stuck in your in your brain. Did any of the churches that your father led have a sort of food charity arm? You know, they didn't. But uh, um, it was, the thing is, is that at that point, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of American religion has become a little bit, well, some of it's become more conservative, obviously, right. but... I think a lot of it has become a little bit more liberal. And in those days, people didn't drink. They didn't go to movies. They didn't read glossy magazines. The ladies didn't sport high fashion. Really, the only vice most Baptists had was eating. Right. And so there were church suppers a lot. And 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 I, you know, so while there wasn't a soup kitchen, the church ladies and the church kitchen was humming you know, often, at least two Sunday nights a, a month, there would be big church-wide dinners. And those also were big, you know, they were like parties, except, you know, there was no booze and there was no right. dancing and there was no music. Right, <laughs> right, right. right. Um, and so, you know, as you as you sort of, at, at the way that this book came about, I'm very interested to kind of hear about it. I mean, it sounds to me like it was not, unlike the, the journalistic work that it sounds like you've done over the years where you have an idea for a story and you pitch it and somebody says, yeah, go ahead, write that story or we're going to send you somewhere to cover an event. Um, how did the book start to take shape in your mind? <clears throat> well, initially... The, the whole I was introduced to the whole idea of mass cookery. I mean, I, of course, I knew that soup kitchens existed, and I even volunteered in some at various points. But I was sent to Delhi, India, to cover what was one of the first India fashion weeks, and you know, I was not going to say no to a free trip to India. Sure. And I had a little assistant, a young man who was a Sikh. And he said to me one day, do you want to come to my temple? And I said, well, of course. And so we went to visit his temple, which used to be a Maharaja's palace 
in central Delhi. And he didn't seem that particularly amazed. The, the reason he was bringing me there was not to show me this, but I thought, wow, there's a soup kitchen here and it feeds 20,000 people a day. Wow. And I just couldn't believe it. And that it was completely run by volunteers and that the chef, the, they had one paid employee, the chef, and he didn't know what food was going to be delivered on any particular day or who was going to show up to cook it. And yet he knew the 20,000 people were going to show up to be fed. Right. And, you know, my jaw is still dropping as I yeah. recount. I mean, as story. I read that portion of your book, I could not believe it. And I had no idea that every Sikh temple, uh, you know, has a soup kitchen in it as part of the. the they do. They do. And it's it's a uh, you know, it's there's no. Anybody can go to them. You don't have to show a card, you know, saying I'm a poor, desperate person. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you people would just show up. And so I was fascinated. I arranged to cook there for a week. And, you know, I wrote a story about it and went on writing other things. And then I had, I had been sent to, to do a story in Iran. And when I was in Iran, I found out about a Muslim practice of what I began to think of as gastrophilanthropy or, you know, showing love for other people through food, where Iranian women have this thing called a Naz, an N-A-Z-R, mm. where they'll want their daughter to meet a nice fellow or they'll want their husband to stop, you know, doing something or they'll want their son to meet, you know, to, or their daughter-in-law to get pregnant. And so they'll pray to Allah and they will say, you know, Allah, if you allow this thing to happen on the day my prayer request is met, I will cook food for X number of poor people for X number of years. And it's this bargain. You know, they drive a pretty hard bargain with Allah. And if, you know, if God comes through for them, they fulfill their end of the bargain. And I thought, well, wow, that's interesting, too. And so I had a I had a niece, I have a niece, but at that point she was getting her PhD at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, and kind of as a lark, but also just to kind of honor my niece, I decided I would do a NAS for her, where for every year she completed a grad school, I would drive to Pittsburgh from New York, and I would find a different soup kitchen, and I would buy all the food, and I would cook all the food at these soup kitchens. and nicely the first soup kitchen i called in pittsburgh and uh asked if i could do this the woman kind of paused for a moment the nice catholic nun who ran the place and then she said sure <laughs> so that kind of launched me into doing that and then it continued to interest me and then at a certain point i realized you know that there might be a book here or there might be some more stories i want to write about it and so then I just kept following it uh, and I mean, arranging. It, yeah, and it took you to, I mean, you you worked, you did something in Japan, uh, South Korea, other places. I mean, it it's, it really, it, it it's, an, it's an amazing book because I think it draws all these parallels between all these vastly different cultures, but it also hits on a lot of different travel things and you make a lot of very interesting observations about the cultures that you visit, whether that's a Catholic nun in Pittsburgh or a, uh, you know, a Buddhist priest in japan right well thank you i i mean you, you you as a food person you can imagine it was an education it was a blessing it was yeah. such a joy to be able to to be around these people and you know people that work in soup kitchens there's a lot easier way to, you know to make a life or to to make a living and 
I, you know, I don't think these people are saints, but they're they're really doing, you know, blessed work by right. working in these places. And sure. so you're meeting very nice, special people. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, and there are, you know, there are soup kitchens all over. And, and one of the things that I really hope anyone listening today, you know, takes away from this conversation is that, you know, there people have to eat every day. And, you know, it is not it is not for us to judge people who are hungry, but that, you know, more likely than not, uh, at least, you know, in, in America in the modern day, I mean, I was in a Costco yesterday, uh, we still have plenty of food, even though people, you know, are kind of, you know, panic buying stuff. And I think that there is, you know, there are greater opportunities for people to give back and to help provide others with food than we might realize. And we should be thinking more about that. Well, yes. And uh, I, I, the point I hope that I make from the book is I make in the book is that it doesn't it doesn't have to change your whole life. You don't have to give up everything you have and, you know, wear sackcloth and ashes. And, you know, just it, it's something that you can do. Like the, I went to a soup kitchen in Hudson about six weeks ago to just to drop off some food and the nice lady who ran the place, Darcy, she and I were talking and I said, well, you know, I, I kind of know how to cook for crowds. And she said, can you show up on Tuesdays? Right. And I said, well, yeah. So I, I just, you know, through one kind of half suggestion, yep. I ended up cooking. I've been cooking there for the last six weeks, every Tuesday, making lunch. Mm. And, you know, people say, oh, Stephen, well, you know how to do all this. Well, everybody knows how to chop onions or everybody knows how to you know it's it's it, we're not talking oat cuisine here it's yeah. it's they need people to wash pans they need people to just push stuff around in a fry pan yeah i mean i love so. that you point out you know visiting at the at the sikh temple in in delhi that you know there is no sort of uh, there's no order. They're not operating under like the Escoffier, you know, like kitchen, like, you know, hierarchy and people just show up and kind of do whatever they can and whatever they're comfortable with. And they don't even know what's showing up. I mean, on the day, the first day you were there, I think you mentioned that an entire truckload of cauliflower showed up that nobody was expecting. Right. And I feel right. like to me, I mean, I think about that and I'm like, oh my gosh, like what a, what a blessing, right? I mean, here's all this wonderful food, but then if you weren't expecting it or planning for it and had no idea it was coming, but then, you know, it gets turned into food and feeds hungry people. Right. And, and on a smaller scale, that's what's going on in soup kitchens in the yeah. U.S. And, and around the world. But I mean, this soup kitchen in Hudson, you walk into the walk-in and there's skids of fresh produce that you know it needs to be cooked in the next couple days because it didn't it didn't sell at the grocery store or the farmer's stand couldn't unload all those green beans or all those cucumbers and they're going they're going to get funky pretty soon so they they've got to be cooked yeah so i want to i want to you know understand are there are there similarities that you uh kind of can draw between the way that people are fed around the world? I mean, you know, aside from the fact that there's obviously hungry people all over in need of nourishment, um, are there similarities or is it, you know, are is it done in different ways in different places, the way you point out that in Iran, it seems to be very personal where one person is doing their nas and maybe feeding a hundred people at a time once a year? Yeah, I, I think, I think what's a little bit different in the United States as opposed to the rest of the world is that 
And, you know, on the one hand, it's a good thing that soup kitchens have to have a higher degree of regulation and I mean, it's not that soup kitchens are unclean in other parts of the world, but they're, they're, there's not the same sort of monitoring of, of soup kitchens so that, you know, people can just walk in and help. And it was very easy for me to, to volunteer in other parts of the world. You know, it was one phone call or one, you know, email and yes was the immediate answer. And, you know, like I have a soup kitchen near me, I won't name in New York City. And I, I, I have gone there many times. And I've said, you know, I really know how to cook. And they say, well, we can't allow you to cook here, or you can't bring food in here. And a lot of soup kitchens in the United States are unwilling to have certainly to have food that's not cooked there brought in, right? Which you know, you understand it. But it's sort of like, well, who, who would not cook good food and think to bring it to a soup. I, I don't know. I, I both get it and don't understand it. Absolutely. And yeah. I, I'm I, sure some of that is probably changing as a result of the increased demand of that COVID-19 has put on some of these systems. But, um, but yeah, I, 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 I think in, well, and, and another thing in, in other parts of the world, the food is much more likely to be vegetarian. Yes. And in soup kitchens in the U S there's a sense that, People, people, this is maybe going to be their one meal and they need lots of calories and they're not going to consider it a meal unless there's protein in it. Right. And, and probably meat protein, right? And probably meat protein. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, it's, you know, it, I do understand it having grown up and lived my entire life in the United States that we have this kind of like litigious society where, you know, the, the fear that someone might bring something in, even if it inadvertently made people sick and came back to haunt the the soup kitchen could be very detrimental to its operation um but right. it also does seem you know really really odd that somebody you know who says look i have the means and i have the knowledge and i want to make food and help these people who are clearly hungry and and would like that food and are being told no so and and i think you're right i mean do you you know so as a segue like do you think that there is room for that kind of thing in the United States. I mean, you mentioned in the book too that we also have a little bit of an odd like distrust that, you know, like if you, you know, that in New York especially, right, we like pride ourselves on being anonymous. And it's one of the things, I mean, I have to say, it's one of the things I love about New York. You walk down the street and you don't have to know everybody and there's something kind of, you know, there's something to me anyway, kind of like freeing in that. Um, so if I was walking down the street and someone I didn't know said, hey, do you want a taco? might not take it from them honestly right right that would be considered extremely weird yeah. in new york and yeah and you know i mean i you probably see it too sometimes where people will walk out of a, a bodega or a, a, a takeout place and they'll just hand food but it's prepared food it's in a bag it's you know they they know and you know we're used to that yeah. um i i do think some of this is changing and and i think to a certain extent, it should. I mean, I I had an experience in St. Louis. It ultimately did not end up in the book, but they, th this one soup kitchen there has this program. It's a frozen casserole program where people could cook casseroles at home and bring them frozen. It, actually, the, the, the soup kitchen even created recipes and they had the pans that they would lend you. You would make the lasagna or the tetrazzini or the whatever, eggplant parm, and bring it to them frozen, and then they would heat it up and serve it. Hmm. And it was such a good idea because, you know, 
you could make a pan of lasagna. I could make a pan of mac and cheese. Right. Um, but that it's kind of unusual that, that that soup kitchen did allow people to cook at home and then bring prepared food. I mean, everybody likes the idea of a potluck supper. Sure, absolutely. I mean, and I even imagine a, a model like that that could work on an even larger model and say, look, we're going to serve macaroni and cheese on Tuesday, and we need 10 families to each make a tray. So maybe not everyone eating gets the exact same macaroni and cheese. Right, right. But it, it, yeah. that's what's being served. It's what's being served. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I think I think it's, it's only this sort of double whammy that I mean, you know, a lot of well, a lot of my younger friends, especially, don't know how to cook at all. Mm -hmm. And then they are kind of intimidated by the idea of a soup kitchen because they feel guilty that they don't have to go to a soup kitchen. And and that's another thing that I hope I get across in the book is that that's a pointless exercise. You know, if you're if you're fortunate enough to not have to go to a soup kitchen, to then avoid soup kitchens because you feel guilty. Well, what's the point of that? Right. I mean, that was also a very American thing, right? You say when you went to Japan, you know, the Buddhist said that he had spent time in the United States and it was this very me-centric <sighs> culture. Yeah. Yeah. And and to make your own guilt, to, to prioritize your own guilt rather than just... Well, and I think the thing is too is we're we're worried about making a mistake, or we're yeah. worried that we're going to offend people, or that we're actually resented. But I, poor people have bigger things to worry about than resenting who's making them lunch. Sure. During this time, it's more important than ever to support our friends and neighbors in the restaurant industry. Restaurant Workers Community Foundation has set up a national COVID-19 crisis relief fund. The money they raise will provide direct relief to individual restaurant workers, support other nonprofits serving restaurant workers in crisis, and offer zero interest loans for restaurants to get back up and running. Visit restaurantworkerscf.org to donate today. And if you need a little extra motivation, you can DM your $20 donation to RWCF's co-founder, John DeBerry, on Twitter, and he'll give you directions for making a signature quarantine cocktail. Donate now at restaurantworkerscf.org. So, you know, I, I do want to talk a little more about people uh, wanting to volunteer in soup kitchens and sort of, you know, is there, you know, in your experience, uh, and certainly now I'm talking about the United States because that's a little more topical, I think, to my listeners, you know, is there is there a way to approach soup kitchens? Is there something that, you know, they need more or is it really just like they need hands and bodies um, you know, I, I definitely, in my experience of kind of, you know, being tangentially aware of and helping places like St. John's Bread and Life in Brooklyn, where I have a friend who helps run the, the soup kitchen and pantry there, um, you know, and, and raising money and funds and things around the holidays, you know, they always say, look, you know, don't help us around Thanksgiving because everybody donates and helps us around Thanksgiving, but we need help right. in like February and March. Well, exactly right. You know, hunger is a 365-day-a-year problem, not a Thanksgiving-day problem. Um, and I, I think 
I think soup kitchens and food pantries obviously need food. I think these days, those soup kitchens that are staying open, like the one I'm cooking at now in Hudson, New York, they're not serving family style or, or group or even, you know, like soup line where people get a plate of food or a tray and go sit at a table. So there's there's even increased work of having to pre-portion, pack up the clamshells, put yeah. them in bags, set them out on a table so people can come get them. So soup kitchens need bodies these days to just help with all that extra work of of actually getting the food to the people that are hungry. And if you know how to cook at all, then you, you know you can be a sous chef or you can wash pots and pans, but I really it it strains credulity to think that if anybody went to feedamerica.org and found a soup kitchen near them and called you're not going to get refused. People are going to say thank you. When can you come? Right. <laughs> sure, sure. Um and so in that soup kitchen, like in that soup kitchen in Hudson, had you spent any time there before the current epidemic before COVID-19? Uh -huh. Honestly, no. Okay. And I and I did not I did not even know it existed. Sure. Well, um, the reason I was asking was because I was curious to know how they've aside from not serving, you know, as you mentioned, kind of cafeteria style anymore. I'm just wondering if they've had to really change around their processes as far as how the people who are working, I mean, if they even have enough space to keep enough social distance and that kind of thing when working in a kitchen. The answer to that is no. I mean, the, the, we 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 wear masks, yep. we wear gloves, we wash our hands over and over and over again. But you're in a galley kitchen with a couple people; you can't be six feet apart. Yeah. So, I, I, I've told myself, you know, if I get COVID at a soup kitchen, better there than at a multiplex or at a you know, yeah. fashion shop. Yeah, you know, absolutely. so. Um, so, yeah. And but, um, you know, knock on wood. And and also, I think a lot of people that uh, when I was talking to one guy, he was saying, you know, soup kitchens are probably the safest place because a kitchens are used to higher standards of, of cleanliness. And then B, we've had all sorts of germs floating through here for a long time. <laughs> right. And, you know, everybody that works here is probably immune. Yeah. So. That's somewhat gallows humor, but I think there is some truth in that. Yeah, I mean, I think that the truth definitely that, you know, people, I mean, I, I was saying this back in early March. Uh, I went to the Charleston Wine and Food Festival and did a bunch of interviews for, for this show. And, you know, we were talking about how, you know, if anybody knows how to keep their hands clean, you know, before all of this, it was doctors and chefs. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about Alexis Soyer and, and his influence on all of this. Alexis Soyer was the most famous uh, chef in the world in the mid-19th century. He was a Frenchman, and he he cooked at this gentleman's club, you know, think Downton Abbey or, you know, some masterpiece theater, poetry men's club, the Reform Club on Pall Mall. And he he built a kitchen at this at the Reform Club that literally was the wonder of the world. He invented cooking with gas. Hmm. He he invented all these things like kitchen timers. He invented, you know, it, it, it was it was sort of like the Apple store of its time where people came li literally from all over the world to see the kitchen at the Reform Club because food had never been cooked in such an organ organized, systematized way. And he was he was kind of a bad boy. I mean, he was a showman. He loved to sing. He loved to tell dirty jokes. He 
spent a lot of money on his flamboyant wardrobe. He was a, maybe a little bit of a drunk. Um, but when the Irish potato famine hit in the around 1845, 86, 87, he decided he would get these rich guys at this uh, gentleman's club to send him to Dublin, where he basically invented the idea of a soup kitchen. He he invented this very systematized way of cooking enormous amounts of food, and he invented these recipes that could be, you know, not quintupled or you know times a hundred that yeah. you know hundreds of people could be fed at once of nutritious, cost-effective food. And there's a excellent biography of him written by a woman named Ruth Cowan. It's called Relish. And I was told about this guy and this chef, and I read this book, and he he kind of became a little bit kind of like my Julia and Julia. He he became kind of my Julia child in that he he wasn't a saint and he still you know he went back to his job at the reform club and still cooked you know fantastically posh food for rich men but then he also cooked in soup kitchens in london and right. so he kind of had this back and forth zigzagging between high low rich poor famine feast which is you know i think the way kind of most of us live we want to be good sometimes and help people and we want to go out and have a nice restaurant meal and a nice bottle of wine ourselves and sure. he kind of gave me permission to think well it's okay to do both yeah and I, and I think that's a really valuable thing to to keep in mind i mean you know in the modern age i guess like that's jose andres right he's you know has these high-end restaurants and has restaurants that people go and pay a lot of money to eat at and then he's running world kitchen and you well know, exactly right traveling exactly all over right. the world wherever and and now kind of everywhere at the same time um you know helping to feed people who don't have enough food yeah he's you know i think if if alexis soyer has been reincarnated to, in anybody that their transmigration of his soul it's gone to jose andres yeah because you know i i hope to, I, I would love to do World Central Kitchen and become trained as one of his chefs. I think that would be a fantastic experience. Yeah. And I mean, you know, and, and the, the cooking for large amounts of people, I mean, you know, your first time kind of volunteering to do this in Pittsburgh, you recount kind of shopping at the supermarket and having people look at you like you were mad because you had four grocery carts full of stuff. And right. and, and the scaling up of, of ingredients and dishes is, I mean, you know, it is a big deal. Somewhere in my collection of cookbooks, I have a I have the Navy cookbook um, right. from World War II where the recipes are in, you know, hundreds of portions. Well, right. And I have some of those too. And they're, they're useful especially because it is this weird thing that many of your listeners will know that you know you can double a recipe but if you try timing a recipe by 10 and you slavishly multiply every single thing by 10 it doesn't work right it's and, it's just it's a weird thing where you kind of have to develop this sense of that you need less of some things and more of some things that it's it's not just simple math there's a there's a weird, uh, I don't know what is the right word, that alchemy that, that turns lots of food into something edible that's not just multiplying by whatever number you want to feed. Yeah, and then I think there's the thing that you point out in the book that most people forget about, which is time. And that, well, you know, the, the assumption that if you multiply a recipe by 10 and you add 
you know, maybe to do double the number of people who are helping, you can't get it all done in the same amount of time. It just doesn't work. Well, right. And I just, I actually made this mistake just last Tuesday. I was making, I discovered that they had these enormous cans of tuna. So I decided to make this tuna salad with a lot of roasted vegetables. And so the usual crowd is about 80 at this soup kitchen. So I, I had these two huge pans full of turnips, potatoes, yams, radishes that I was roasting. And I'm scratching my head and I'm thinking, is this oven broken? You know, it's just not working. And then I realized I have crammed this oven full of vegetables more than, you know, even just the sheer mass of food. Even if you go into the one oven, it, it affects things differently. So that's all an art of mass cookery that clearly Jose Andres has, has figured out. But it's trial and error. Yeah, it, yeah, it really is. Um, what do you think the the future looks like for soup kitchens? And I'm just thinking, you know, in terms of the the bigger picture of restaurants right now in this country, you know, I think that we, uh, you know, in the darkest uh, in the darkest view that one could take, you know, I think we're going to lose a lot of great restaurants in the next 12 months. But that's a lot of kitchens that could be helping feed people. Do you think there's an opportunity there? Well, yeah, and. You know, it's, it's it's this funny thing, too, that soup kitchens will sometimes, you know, brag is kind of the wrong word, but they'll say, we fed 500 people today, or, you know, our numbers are up, we fed 575. And, you know, it's you're proud of the fact of the feat that you've actually fed this many people. But on the other hand, you're ashamed that the numbers are going up. Right. The goal would be to be out of business, I think. As well, that's the same. Who ran a soup kitchen. Right. Um, I, you know, I agree with you. I don't know when, how soon any of us are going to feel comfortable sitting on a deuce, you know, next to another, once a waiter, always a waiter, you know, a deuce, <laughs> Yes. you know, um, you know, sitting next to some other couple, you know, where basically we can reach into their bread basket. I, I, I don't know how soon that will happen. Probably, you know, restaurants at lower price point are going to open sooner than higher but you know in a higher restaurant you it's easier to have social distance yeah. it's i don't know i don't know the answer to that question it's it's but it's it's sobering to think about because going out to eat and being cooked for is such a joy of life yeah do you think that that there is an opportunity for the people who are um who are coming to the soup kitchens to eat? I don't know. I mean, what, what what is the parlance? Do you call them customers, clients? How do how do you? I, I sometimes them? call them. They, usually, they're called clients, but clients. sometimes they'll call, they're actually called consumers. Consumers, sure. Because they sure are consuming. I mean, you know, it, is there some opportunity for that? Even though, as you you know, as you say, a lot of people who are coming to soup kitchens might have a lot of other things on their minds than, you know, whether or not they're going to enjoy the food. Um, but I, you know, do you think that there's also an opportunity for that? I mean, for people to both have a nice meal from the soup kitchen and feel like, you know, that they get the things that, you know, those of us who are more fortunate get when we go out to eat and the reasons that we go out to eat? Well, yes. And I think too, as more people that never, you know, solidly middle-class people that are currently going to food kitchens or soup kitchens when, you know, God willing, COVID-19 goes away and they get their job again, I'm I'm hoping that they're mindful that they don't, I don't think we're going to forget all this too soon. And 
I'm hoping that we remember that, you know, just because I got my job back and I got mine, you know, there's there's still other people suffering. And what was it like, you know, to, to, to remember those that, that still are going to these places and that wouldn't it have been nice if the food was not all soup kitchens in America are serving bad food by any means, no, but, um, you know, to, to remember that you did have a nice meal at a soup kitchen and wouldn't it be nice if you donated some food or donated some time to keep making the food nice at your local soup kitchen? I, I, I tend to be a little bit of an optimist about some of this stuff. So yes, I, I think, I think that can happen. Um, is there any, uh, is there any recipe that you, uh, learned or technique that you learned in your travels and in your cooking in all of these soup kitchens that you have now brought into using in your home kitchen? Um, yes, I, 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 <clears throat> I used to be a little bit more slavish about peeling garlic carefully. And, you know, now I just bang the bejesus out of it on a cutting board and sure. you know and it, i'm i'm a little bit less precious about some of my cooking where mm. somebody taught me this very fast way to to um slice a bell pepper mm. you know i used to carefully take out the top and you know get all the white plinth and not plinth piss yeah. out of it and you know i'm just it's you know, you realize you can waste a lot of time on some of that stuff that really doesn't make any difference. Mm, sure. um, I, I, I've become a little bit more of a production chef, even at home. Right. Yeah. And also, I'm, I shop my, you know, and I think we all are. I think we're all shopping our refrigerator a lot more these days. Oh, and, yeah. you know, I look in my, my door and I see a little wedge of tamarind paste and I think, you know, how did I ever get that? But then I think, well, I'm going to use that. Right. Because I, you know, I don't want to necessarily go to the grocery store again, or I have it. Why am I, you know, I, I used to be a little bit more blithe about, you know, well, whatever. I use that for that recipe and I wouldn't throw it away, but I would just kind of ignore it. But, you know, I've got bags of beans or old jars of mustard. I'm using them up yeah. these days. Yeah, me too. And I, I imagine a lot of people are. I mean, because yeah. the, it's the, you know, it's the the kind of, you know, when once in our lives, I think we would have said, oh, that's the wrong kind of mustard, right? Like, oh, I'm right. doing this recipe and it says Dijon, I'm out of Dijon. I'll just run to the store and get right. some. I don't think anybody well, would do that today. Well, right. And I think another thing you learn in some of this mass cookery that happens in soup kitchens is that you know, substitute, baby, right. you know, you don't have this, use that, or, you know, I'm doing that a lot these days, too, where I'm just Googling, you know, what, you know, what is a good substitute for X? And, you know, you don't have to follow a recipe slavishly, yeah. you know, unless you're baking. Yeah, you know, that's, a, that's a little bit more exacting. But yeah, absolutely. Um, is there anything, uh, you know, anything we anything we didn't cover? I mean, I, I imagine you're not doing a book tour currently. For the book no i'm not and that i what i'm i had such a if i congratulate myself i had such a good idea that i will do but we i was going to have a book party at holy apostle soup kitchen in new york city mm. i mentioned my husband has a public relations agency so i had some kids from his office helping me and we were going to have a big party there i was going to do all the cooking and i was going to honor chefs in new york city who cook at soup kitchens so I, I had this nice roster of, you know, five chefs who were cooking in soup kitchens all over the U.S. And the book party was going to celebrate them. 
And then I was going to go on a book tour where each city I visited, I was going to cook a dinner in honor of the chefs who cook, you know, 365 days a year in Atlanta or Baltimore or Chicago. And when, as soon as we get the all clear, I'm going to go on the road and do that. But because, you know, I feel I can beat my chest about this book because all the proceeds from it are being donated to food banks for New York city. Mm. And, you know, if the book sells, people are making a donation to a charity that needs their help more than ever. And I would like to honor and write stories about some of these chefs who are doing this all the time. That's it's a real calling. Yeah. And that, I mean, and that's awesome. So I, you know, please keep us posted, uh, as to when that tour happens. Um, cause we'd love to I will. get word out about it. Thank you. Thank you. I will. And then what about with writing? What, what else do you have on the horizon? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm dreaming about a, a new project, which, you know, as any writer, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I've, I've got some stuff going on and I'm, I'm, I'm doing some writing for some other people, but these 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 days my main job is kind of banging the drum for the 24-hour soup kitchen just to try to get again because i the, the book is kind of a fundraiser so i'm uh i'm i'm hoping it it has a little bit of a sale great well thank you so much for sharing your story here oh well thank you for having me on it's an honor thank you so much thanks for listening to feast your ears today you can find more and follow steven at the 24-Hour Soup Kitchen on Instagram, and you can find the book wherever books are sold. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows here at heritageradionetwork.org on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please reach out if you have any questions. You can reach me on email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. You can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Feast Your Ears is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.